Well, let's turn to um, Acts chapter 13 again. That's page 1701. And we read in verse 12 concerning this man called Sergius Paulus, who was a proconsul. We read concerning him in verse 12 that the proconsul believed when he saw what had been done being astonished at the teaching of the Lord. So the proconsul believed when he saw what had been done, that's in the life of the sorcerer, Bar-Jesus, when he saw that, and being astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Now, until uh, Paul's final trials in Rome which of course led to his execution around about A.D. 67 or 68. There are four occasions in which Paul appears before Roman officials, and he either appears before them in a, an official capacity or a non-official capacity, and some of these appearances are better known than others. For example, when he appeared before Felix, um, and Felix famously trembled when Paul preached the gospel to him, when he preached to him concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Others are not so well known, uh, perhaps including this one, when he appeared before this man, Sergius Paulus. But when we take these four encounters with Roman officials together, they have a lot to say to us. That's no surprise because the Word of God always does. But one of the interesting things about these meetings is that they bring Paul face to face with people perhaps that um, people were not used to meeting before. I don't just mean by that that they were people in power or people with great influence, but they were people largely with a Western culture and what you would call a Western mindset, which is a little bit different perhaps from the kind of people that you would normally meet with in the East. People who are really like many people that we know in the world today. Uh, better educated in a formal sense anyway, not that formal education necessarily leads to proper education, but still they were formally educated and they would be a kind of sceptical or even a cynical group of people on the Roman military and the Roman government were renowned really for being like that, very sceptical and cynical in life. They felt superior to religious people because the Romans, like many of them, were moving away from the whole idea of gods and creators and they would be far more comfortable in a kind of materialistic setting like we are familiar with ourselves. So they would be dismissive largely of religious people. And uh, you see that clearly in the way that people like Festus uh, respond to Paul or someone like Gallio, who we'll consider tonight, who was a Roman ruler in the city of Corinth. But with God's help, just over the next two or three weeks, we'll 
Paul's house studies and other things. And we'll look at these encounters together to see what we can learn from them. And the first of these is Paul's meeting with this proconsul over the province of Cyprus, a man called Sergius Paulus. Now, he, like the other three, appears in secular history, or they appear either in secular history or written in stone, and therefore uh, preserved archaeologically. Uh, that's a very important thing, because um, not because it's necessary to find these references to somehow prove that these people existed. I mean, these people are recorded here in this history, but it always corroborates it. And one of the reasons that's interesting is because so many of these individuals, their, their very existence was rubbished for many, many years. It's largely in the late 19th century that these people's names were uncovered, either in writings or tablets or in stone, like Pontius Pilate himself. His name only came up really fairly recently on stone in Caesarea. Now, this man's name you can still see written in stone. If you were to visit the museum in Cyprus, you would find a stone with uh, Paulus Proconsul written on it. That stone was discovered in the late 19th century, and it's dated to the mid-first century, which is exactly the time where this occurred, in the early 50s AD. The historian Pliny himself also... In two of his books, the second book and the 18th, uh, records his thanks to a Sergius Paulus for some of the information that he uses. And it's an interesting detail that in these two books, the second and the 18th book, there are references to Cyprus and to certain events that took place there. So that is an indirect testimony, too, to the fact that this man really was there. He had a genuine existence. He was a proconsul, but here we're led to the most important day of his life. Other people may be interested in Sergius Paulus for other reasons, but the fact of the matter is that only one day in his life is brought before us in the Bible, and it was the most important day in his life, because in it he was privileged to hear the gospel, and not just to hear the gospel, but to come under its power in the marvellous grace of God, who works all things according to the counsel of his own will. Now, uh, one, of these, um, one of the reasons I have just for emphasising these things is because it's easy to get things like Roman names and Roman titles wrong. Uh, and this is a classic example. Shortly before this, Cyprus was actually an imperial province of Rome, which meant that it was under the direct control of the emperor. So it would be ruled by a, a prefect, like Pilate in Judea, which was an imperial province. Shortly before this, it was changed to a senatorial province, which was meant that it was under the control of the Roman Senate, therefore ruled by a proconsul. For many years, people thought Luke had the wrong title. The fact of the matter is that you can go through Luke's gospel as much as you like with a fine tooth comb and you find that he makes absolutely no mistakes even where people thought 
he was making a mistake. When he mentions the governor of Syria, at the point at which the census was taken, at which the birth of our Lord Jesus was effectively recorded, people thought there was a mistake. Later it discovers no mistake. Luke mentions 32 countries, 54 cities, nine islands, and loads of Roman officers, and he gives their dates and he gives their names exactly. Because, not just because he is himself an intelligent man like Sergius Paulus, but because he is overseen by the Holy Spirit of God, and the scriptures that he writes are inerrant. Now, after a successful career in Rome, Sergius Paulus is appointed to this station in Cyprus. He's situated in Paphos, which some of you may have visited. It's still a, a popular holiday destination. And that's where he's privileged to meet the first two great missionaries of the Christian church. Just as Stephen was the first martyr, well, the first great missionaries are Paul and Barnabas. And they are recognized as such by the church in Antioch. And after a time of prayer and fasting, Notice, not after a time of reasoning and speculating, but after a time of prayer and fasting, they hear the voice of God and they appoint Saul and Barnabas to go out on this journey, or Barnabas and Saul. Uh, although it's interesting that from this point onwards, they are never referred to as Barnabas and Saul again, but Paul and Barnabas. In fact, from this point on, Saul adopts the new name that he probably already had, which is a more Gentile name of Paul. But this is, as I mentioned, a great day in the life of this man when he's privileged to hear the gospel. Now, Paul and Barnabas had arrived on the east of the island in the old capital of Salamis. They crossed about a 100 miles to Paphos, and they looked for Jews, which was their practice. I mean, they always took the gospel to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. And even though Paul knew in his heart, and in fact knew directly from God, that his mission was specifically to the Gentile, it's still interesting that wherever he went, he sought out the Jews first. And I don't think it was just because it was a kind of tactic, because he, he used them to get through to the Gentiles, I think there was something theological in it, that he knew that it was to be offered to them first and then to the Gentile. It's a special way in which God reminds us that this people still has a special place in the unfolding purpose of God. It is part of the mystery of that unfolding purpose. As I mentioned a few weeks ago, it's called a mystery in the Bible. It's part of the mystery that through the Gentiles, these Jews will come back in when the Gentiles themselves are on their dying breath and through this re-engrafting of the Jewish people, the Gentiles themselves will flourish and a glorious millennium will come in. Now they met this man called Bar-Jesus or the son of Joshua. That's what Bar-Jesus means, the son of Joshua, who was with the proconsul. Now, I don't know the exact circumstances of what was said at that first meeting, but it's very plain that it made some kind of impression on the proconsul himself. And he asks to have a meeting with Barnabas and with Paul. 
and he wants the opportunity to hear what Barnabas and Paul have to say. Now, we never know when opportunities like that are going to come to us uh, in God's providence. Of course, most of us are used to coming to the house of God and hearing the word of God regularly preached. Perhaps you you read it regularly yourself. Even if that's true, there can still be certain providences when you have an encounter with someone and God speaks to you in a special way. But it's always important to be ready to take advantage of these things, to be open and to hear what God is saying to you. Tonight we're going to consider another Roman official whose name was Gallio, who didn't give Paul an opportunity to speak. Just when Paul was about to open his mouth, we're told, Gallio effectively stopped him and said that he just didn't hear what he wanted, what he had to say. That was a fatal decision on Gallio's part. I mean, who knows what it could have led to had he allowed the apostle to speak, but it was not to be. And he never heard that gospel And as a man who committed suicide a few years later, it's doubtful if he ever heard it again. And that's just because he was too arrogant to listen to it. But thankfully, Sergius Paulus was not like that. He wanted to hear what Barnabas and Paul had to say. He doubtless heard them say something about God and he wanted to hear it. Now Luke tells us here that he was an intelligent man. That's all he tells us about him. But it's an interesting thing that he says that at all. He doesn't say that really or that kind of thing about anybody else. And I wonder sometimes if it's partly a a comment that Luke is passing on the fact that many of the people who claim to be intelligent or uh, who claimed to be wise, weren't really that, and that Sergius Paulus was a bit of an exception to that, that he somehow honoured his post by being genuinely intelligent. He had an open and inquiring mind. And sometimes people's minds or their intelligences can be closed by a sense of their own self-importance and a sense of their own dignity. They become kind of know-it-alls and you can't tell them anything. And if you try to present anything to them, they'll sneer at you as though, well, you know know nothing. And uh, we know. We know how the universe was created and we know where people came from and we know the origin of things and we know how the world's going to end and all these kind of things. We know and their minds are closed. And when you try to speak to them, well, there is no open and searching inquiry like a genuinely intelligent person would have. We, we read earlier in the Gospel one of the prayers that the Lord Jesus offered. And it was a remarkable prayer where he gave God thanks. He gave his Father thanks that he had hidden these things. Now, that's the things of the Gospel the things to do with the power and glory of God. He had hidden these things from the wise and... Now, the translation there is prudent, but it's the same word as here, which is really best translated as intelligent. He had hidden these things from the wise and the intelligent, but revealed them instead to babes. Now, when the Lord uses the words wise and intelligent there, he's using them in a certain sense. He's using them of people who are wise and intelligent in their own estimation and in their own eyes. 
There's nothing to hinder wise and intelligent people from coming into the kingdom of heaven unless their wisdom and intelligence is of such a kind that it blinds them to the truth because they think they know everything themselves. O Lord, Christ says, you have hidden the gospel from them, but you have revealed them unto babes. And the idea of being a babe there is being childlike. And what's being impressed upon us in connection with childlikeness there is just openness, um, a teachableness. You know yourself the difference between a teachable person and a person who is not teachable. You can see the difference pretty quickly. And the Lord says, you've hidden these things from the wise and the intelligent, but you have revealed them unto babes. But Sergius Paulus was genuinely intelligent. He realized that there were things greater in the world than himself, that there were people who knew more than himself, and he must have been open to the idea that whatever the foolishness of Roman gods or Greek gods or any other gods, that there was a power behind everything that was, and not just on a power but an intelligence behind everything there was. It's one of the great mysteries of the world today how intelligent people think there is no intelligence behind the intelligence that is in the world. That is a great mystery. We would have thought that one of the most self-evident things must be that there is an intelligence behind our own intelligence and the world in which we live. And he, thankfully, knew that. He's not, in other words, a fool who says in his heart that there is no God. That's what the fool says according to the Bible. So he wants to hear Paul and Barnabas, and they, of course, are willing to speak to him. Now, as so often happens, um, when the gospel begins to be preached and when an impression is being made, there's a major distraction. Now, that's not an unusual thing. Um, you, you'll often find that when God is at work, the devil is at work. When the gospel is being preached, distractions are present. Now, they can be something in a building, something outside a window, uh, something beside you on a seat, or just a thought that arises in your heart and off it goes. Sometimes it can be more serious than that, as it was in this case here. A major distraction diverting this man from uh, hearing the word of God that he was privileged to hear and putting his mind to it. And the distraction came in the form of a person, the, actually the person who was the point of contact between him and the apostles in the first place, this man called Bar-Jesus. He has another name here, he's called Elimus, and he is a sorcerer. Now that's a, a Greek term for the magi, the magicians, the the, the wise men in the East who were often found in positions of power and influence in governments. You'll find them particularly notable amongst the Medes and the Persians. Now, they were certainly learned men. They were able men. And as well as being astrologers, they were astronomers too. You'll remember that people couldn't be astrologers unless they were competent astronomers in the first place. Astronomers... Being astronomers just means that they were able to study the stars and their movements, their positions, and so on. Astrology, of course, is ascribing significance to that. 
a sense of fate, reading your life and reading your destiny. And because they were so gifted, and they married that gift with an ability, apparently, to discern times and seasons and the fates and the destinies of people, they were often brought as a kind of priestly class into government. Uh, the Lord, of course, worked amongst them too. Uh, it was a group of them that recognized uh, the birth of a Messiah from the stars and uh, who came to Jerusalem uh, to see the birth of the one who would be born as the king of the Jews. There's a whole fascinating history behind that, but that's the kind of person that this man claims to be. And he's, he's warmed himself through uh, what Paul calls fraud and deceit into this place of serious influence and power, a power that he wields over this man Sergius Paulus. Now, it's sometimes quite interesting to see how intelligent people can be manipulated by people who are more, well, let's just say wise than they are themselves. And this man clearly has a lot of influence over the proconsul. He's certainly present, I don't know if anyone else is, but he's certainly present on this occasion. And the minute he, he starts hearing the message, he wants to stop it. He interrupts it. He interrupts it. He doesn't like it. He doesn't have an openness to the truth. He's, he's got a bad influence on someone who could come under its power. Now, when I said that um, these kind of people work their way into positions of power, you, you'll notice it actually through the ages. Alexander the Great had this mysterious figure who went around with them all the time, who, who was rather like this. And Alexander the Great used to listen to him a lot, what he thought was going to happen in the future, and so on. You'll find even someone like Tsar Nicholas II, the last of the Tsars, he had this mysterious Rasputin, who was wielding this, wielding this influence over the whole royal family and over Russian policy. Well, that's the kind of character that we have here. And in some respects, you see this kind of thing still going on in government. Um, you'll find that people who are in front of the camera and who answer the questions and make all the policies are bit part players. You'll find that the real movers and the shakers politically are always behind the camera. Um, they're behind the person who's in front of the camera. I remember once when I was preaching in England, speaking to someone who was quite high in political circles. He just happened to be at the meeting. And he told me how many people in government at the time, now this is going back, I suppose, I don't know, uh, maybe 15 years or something, but how many, well, it was the time when David Cameron was Prime Minister, funnily enough, but he, he told me how many people in cabinet and in government were surrounded by a circle of a close circle of advisors who were the real government, he said. They're the real government. And they're always in place when others move away. And they are the ones who move the agenda all the time. And they're never seen and they're never heard. He was, he was actually talking in connection with somebody who was quite prominent, who was a, a very conservative, let's say with a small c, a very conservative person in his view of family and morality, divorce, abortion, all these things, and he suddenly started to lurch to, to the liberal side. And 
This man was making the point that the reason he was lurching was because he was surrounded by a close circle of people who were just like that. And they were influencing him all the time. Now the devil is in that. The devil, as someone once said, he, he seldom comes in with bells and whistles. He, he usually creeps in. Creeps into churches, he creeps into people's lives. Creeps into people's marriages, he creeps into families unannounced and unawares. And he does his own work in his own way behind the scenes and he's seldom identified. And this bar Jesus, well, there's a lot more to him than meets the eye. The power of the devil is at work in him. And the devil is using him to run the proconsul and to run the affairs of Cyprus. As the book of Daniel tells us, the the world of principalities and powers, the, the dark side out there, out there and in here, and all around us, is concerned with nations and with provinces and with governments. They are concerned that these nations and provinces be kept in darkness, that they be kept in unbelief, and that the power of the gospel is kept from them. That's their intention. And there is a lot of effort to make sure that people in power don't hear the gospel and that they don't come under the power of the gospel because, of course, the influence of those in power is huge when it comes to the nation itself. It's huge. And so the devil is interested in keeping the gospel from them. And uh, interestingly, that was something else that person said to me, that once this circle closes round the leaders, they seldom get the opportunity to hear a voice that would be meaningfully good for them. That's the kind of role that Elimus, the sorcerer, is playing in the government of Cyprus. He's with Sergius Paulus and he has a great influence on Sergius Paulus and he wants to keep him away from the faith. Now, uh, You'll remember there was an incident, quite a famous incident because it stood out, and this is going further back. You'll remember when somebody asked uh, Tony Blair a question uh, that was to do with God and religion. And his, of course, his leading advisor at the time was uh, Alistair Campbell. And he famously interjected and said, we don't do God. Now, whatever his faults and failings, it's quite clear that to use his own way of expression, Tony Blair certainly did uh, do God, in some sense anyway, but we don't do God. That's the official position. Keep him out, out of government and out of a nation's affairs. Now the fact is, when this man starts to withstand Paul, there's an opportunity likely to be lost. And the word withstand here is strong. The same word we met actually last Sabbath, when Paul withstood Peter, withstood him to his face, here he does the same thing. He starts to butt in. He starts to interject. He wants to stop the gospel. wants to stop it. Notice that it's not that he so much that he doesn't want to hear it himself, although he doesn't, but that's not his point. We're told specifically in the chapter here that he doesn't want the proconsul to hear the gospel. Isn't that interesting? It kind of brings you to the, to the fact that the devil is in this, that the devil is behind it not wanting the proconsul to come under the power of the gospel. Sometimes when you're a Christian, you're so keen on 
um, on others finding what you've got, that, that you'll use every effort you've got to bring the gospel to them. This man is using all his power to keep the gospel from somebody that he doesn't want to hear it. Sometimes you've got to watch who your friends are, whether you're in government or not. Just watch who your friends are. There are friends, perhaps in your life, people you know who are actually keeping you back from the word of God. Uh, they present a life to you and a set of opinions, and they, they resent you making a move in any direction towards the gospel. And they'll make that known. I remember that from my own life. I'm, I'm, I'll be surprised if many of you either can't recall it from your own life or are experiencing something like that. They, they use every effort to bring you away from the word of God. And Sergius Paulus is exactly like that. But how does Paul deal with it? Well, praise the Lord that the Holy Spirit was present in that day. He was present in that day. And it's the Holy Spirit's presence that makes all the difference. And he works in a threefold way that day. First of all, he fills the preacher, Paul. We're told that, that Paul was filled at that point with the Holy Spirit. The second thing the Spirit did was that he convicted the sorcerer, Elimus. And the third thing he did was that he converted the proconsul, Sergius Paulus. Fills the preacher, convicts the sorcerer, and converts the proconsul. First, he fills the preacher. Now, friends, that is something you need to pray for, as well as me. It's one of the things our confession reminds us of, and our catechisms, really, when it comes to preparing ourselves for the preaching of God's word. And uh, when we pray as families, that we pray for a blessing upon the preacher and upon the preaching of the word. If the, if the Holy Spirit is, is not present in the proclamation, what do we expect from it? You could expect this or that, but you're not going to expect um, or you're not going to witness the work of God being accomplished that day. The presence of the Holy Spirit is necessary for that. Something may be said that might interest you, something may be said that might encourage or discourage you, but nothing spiritual will take place. Nothing effective when it comes to to the work of God in your life or in the life of the congregation will be there unless the Holy Spirit is there, really present in the proclamation and in the hearing. Now, as far as Paul went, it's not easy to respond to the fact that this advisor figure is cutting in every second and trying to stop what's being done. And I'm quite sure in his heart, as he's speaking, the apostle is asking the Lord for help and guidance and wisdom as to how to deal with this kind of situation. And we have to remember that, and we'll see that especially tonight in connection with the other man, Gallio. But we have to remember that important issues are at stake. The way proconsuls decide on things is very important. He could shut down the preaching of the gospel in Cyprus, or he could open the door wide to the preaching of the gospel in Cyprus. So he needs the Lord to help him as to what to say, how to respond to this person, to say the right thing, and to say the right thing with the right spirit. These two things are vitally important. 
the right thing needs to be said in the right spirit to do the work of the Lord. But praise God, he is filled with the Holy Spirit who teaches him what to say. Now, Christ gives us confidence in these situations. You'll remember that Christ told the apostles, and I'm sure he told Paul the same thing when he was teaching him in Arabia. I'm sure he told him exactly the same thing. He said, don't worry about how or what you should answer. Notice the how and the what. Leave, let, let me control your spirit. Let me control how you say it and let me give you what to say. Put yourself in my hands. That's what we need to do as Christians when it comes to sharing the gospel. Put ourselves in the Lord's hands to give us the right spirit, the how to say as well as the what to say. So don't worry about how or what you should answer. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Now that's a great promise. And the Holy Spirit gives Paul a word of conviction for the sorcerer and a word of judgment. A word of conviction and a word of judgment. Before he gives it, it's interesting that Luke tells us that he stared intently at him. He stared intently at him. Saul, in verse 9, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him. I, when I was thinking about this, I, it reminded me very much of, of the way in which Peter and John looked at the man that they were healing or the Lord was healing through them at the gate beautiful um, in Acts chapter 3 when they went up to the temple at the word at the time of prayer. Um, this man, you'll remember, asked Peter and John for charitable givings. They asked for alms. But we're told that Peter and John fixed their eyes on, on him and said, look at us. And he gave them his attention. And Peter said, I do not have silver or gold, but what I do have I give you. And in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, he says, rise up and walk. But he looked, look at us. And a strange command. And in a way, you might ask the same thing here. Why, why does Paul look so intently at this man. Well, I think if, if you had something very, very important to say yourself to somebody, you might do exactly the same thing. Not just to get the person's attention, but just for the person to know that what you were going to say to them was of huge importance. And, and, and that's what Paul is doing here. He's turning to this manipulative sorcerer who's turned far from his Jewish roots and given himself over to an ambitious career in politics, which he mixes with his astrology, and he looks at him with a look that is designed to communicate, really, not just the fact that Paul is speaking to him, but that Paul now knows him, that the Holy Spirit has given him an insight into who this person is and what his character is, 
And therefore, through the eyes of the apostle upon him, there is the sense that God himself is speaking to him. That's, that's what Paul is conveying to him. Listen carefully, he says, to what I am saying to you. And with it, Elimus has the sense that he is not just being spoken to, but he's being searched out. The eyes that are on him aren't just the eyes of a man, but the eyes of a spirit-filled man, and therefore the eyes of God himself. And as the words come out, he's exposed. O you full of deceit and full of fraud. Nobody here maybe knows that. I know it. God knows it. And God has revealed it to me. That that is who you are. You are where you are because you love power. You love praise. And you don't want to lose any of your power. You don't want to lose any of your praise and adulation. Your comforts and your privileges. You don't want this man to hear the gospel. The one who lives in you doesn't want this man to hear the gospel and you don't want to hear it yourself. But when this man hears Paul saying all that, he knows that it's God who's speaking. Why? Because he's identified him. Paul doesn't know him, as we say from Adam, except that he seems to. He knows him. And sometimes God just does that. He comes into your life in a way that just shows you yourself. Shows you yourself. That's the first step to becoming a Christian, really. To see yourself for who and what you are. And it's not a pretty picture. We spend most of our lives dressing ourselves up. As much on the inside as we do outside. Justifying ourselves to ourselves. And justifying ourselves to others. And if we believe in God, we are justifying ourselves to God. Until we're brought to a place where we're conscious of the eyes of Christ himself upon us. Which are like a flame of fire. O Lord, thou hast me searched and known. My sitting down, my rising up. All my thoughts afar to thee are known. My footsteps and my lying down thou compassest always. Thou also art, art most entirely art acquaint with all my ways. Even before I speak a word, it is known to you, because you know from where it came, the thoughts and the purposes of the heart, nothing, all things are naked and open before the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Now, is it a good thing for you to be searched out? When uh, Job's friends were trying to comfort him, they famously said um, that God was really searching him out. They said to him, the reason that you're in so much trouble is because God has gone into your life, searched it out, and found things that he's now openly judging. That was a cruel and harsh thing to say. Uh, and it was believers who said it. But I, I often say to people, by way of mitigation, that um, although we think it's very unkind, I sometimes say to people, honestly... Honestly, if you knew a Christian who pretty much overnight lost his whole family, his whole business, everything he ever had, 
and was simultaneously afflicted with a terrible disease from the crown of his head to the sole of his foot, would you not think that he had done something radically wrong before God? So before you're, you're too quick to condemn these counsellors for their spiritual diagnosis of Job, just remember, maybe you'd have diagnosed him in exactly the same way, and me too. But Job interestingly turned round the searchlight on themselves and he said, will it be well when he searches you out? It always comes back to ourselves. That was a perceptive question Job asked. Will it be well for you when he searches you out? And will it? You judge this person and that person. Yourself. When you appear before God and he searches you out as only he can. In Revelation 1, we're told that the eyes of the Lord Jesus are flames of fire. That's, that's a picture of penetrating power. Fire goes everywhere. And it illuminates and scorches and searches as it goes. Will it be well with you when he searches you out? Is it not better for this man, Elimus, to have the eyes of Paul exposing him right now than to have the eyes of the Lord Jesus finally expose him at the judgment seat. Isn't, isn't it better for us all to know the truth about ourselves from an honest Christian, a spirit-filled Christian or a spirit-filled preacher? Is it not better to know the truth from them now while it can be remedied before we find out the truth on the day of judgment when it can't be remedied? Because as the tree falls, so it shall lie. And the sadness is that there's such an incongruity between this man's name and his character. His name is Son of Jesus or Son of Joshua. Joshua was a great name that Jewish children would have. It means God the Saviour. The Saviour. It is, of course, the name that Jesus himself had. Jesus is the Greek form of it. I mean, his real name is Joshua or Yeshua. That's who he was. Joshua, the son of Joseph. This man's name is Bar-Joseph. And Paul said to him, you're a son of the devil. You may be called the son of Joshua, he says, but you are, in fact, the son of the devil. I wonder how many of ourselves carry a name that says something wonderful like John, meaning grace, or Mary, or Anna or all these things, these wonderful names, and we have characters that are not the same. We have a wonderful name and an awful character before God, a son of Joshua, but a son of the devil, a son of the devil. So that's conviction. You remember last Lord's Day, I mentioned that conviction carries the idea of exposure, Exposure, bringing to the light. Well, that's what Paul does. He brings brings you to the light, brought him to the light. And as well as that, he pronounces a judgment upon him. He is going to be temporarily blind. Verse 11, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you shall be blind, not seeing the sun for a time. A temporary blindness. Uh, it's described as a mist at the end, middle of verse 11, a dark mist fell on him. This is the only time this Greek word appears in the New Testament. But it's a common word in Greek, especially in medical textbooks. 
where it describes what can sometimes come upon the eyes, like a cloud. Now, I think it would be diagnosed today as a cataract. That's, that, that's what, came, that's what the, these medical writers were writing about, the effect of a cataract. This is the word they used, and Paul uses it here. The Holy Spirit, Luke uses it here, for what came upon his eyes, except it was a dark mist. So he's conscious of a dark cloud coming over his eyes, which is so serious that he actually requires someone to lead him away from the tribunal, where he's causing so much trouble and so much difficulty. God puts him out of the way, as God can do. He can take an obstacle like that, uh, someone coming in between you and the gospel, and just remove him away. Now, as I've said before, until God judges us finally, all his judgments have kindness in them. And they have mercy. Until the final judgment, there's mercy mingled with judgment. There's that here. You'll notice that this man is only blinded temporarily for a season. wonder why that would be. Well, you think of what blindness like this does. For one thing, it's got professional damage for him. Blinds him to the sun and the moon and the stars. Uh, his job is in peril. But besides that, that's so important, in other words, to these charlatans, to be able to read the skies. But it does more than that. When you lose your sight, it turns you in on yourself. Turns you in on yourself. And it turns him in to consider what Paul's just said to him. How Paul's exposed him and shown him to himself. And as well as turning you into yourself, by the grace of God, it can turn you into God. In towards God, I mean by that. The God who is invisible. You begin to think on him when there's no distractions upon you. Now, if anyone knew what that was about, it was certainly Paul. He knew the effect of blindness. Fourteen years before this, he was struck blind on the road to Damascus. And when he was in the house of this man in Damascus for three days, he could see nothing. But he saw everything, everything, blind physically, but suddenly seeing spiritually. What a, bl- what a mercy to be blinded physically in order to see spiritually. And when he saw spiritually, you'll remember that the scales came off his eyes. This man's got plenty to think about. Where he came from, the heritage he had, how he had turned away from it. And what he had become, the mess he had become, through, through his own choice. Mercy in it. I wonder if he came to the place where he said, it was good for me that I was afflicted. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I keep your word. But there was a third work of the Spirit, and it's on the proconsul. And he's not convicting him marvellously. He's converting him. Luke tells us that in verse 12, that the proconsul believed when he saw what had been done, being astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Now, when it says he, he believed here, I read a couple of commentaries which said that it was just a kind of 
a belief that some people have in response to a wonder being done or something like that. And they, they emphasise the fact that he wasn't baptised or anything like that. But the fact that it doesn't say that he was baptised doesn't mean that he wasn't baptised. And the fact of the matter is that normally when the Bible uses the word believe, it means it in an efficacious saving way. If it doesn't mean it in an efficacious saving way, it actually says so in the passage, or it gives clear indications that their belief was just a kind of historical belief, or you know the kind of belief people have that just doesn't last. Normally, the use of the word believe means to believe savingly, genuinely and really. And the fact of the matter is that the Holy Spirit has recorded for us here the first non-Jewish person who is brought to gospel light through the first missionary journey of Paul and Barnabas. Why record it otherwise if it was spurious and ineffective? No, he believed and he genuinely believed. But I want you to notice something that's easy to miss. He's not converted by the miracle. He's converted by the power of God working in the word. And you'll notice how carefully that's written for us here in verse 12. I think when some people read verse 12, they, they read it as though he believed um, simply because of the miracle. That's not what the verse says. Read it carefully. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had been done, being astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Being astonished. In other words, the tense tells us that he was already astonished at the teaching of the Lord. That astonishment at the Lord's teaching preceded the miracle. And the miracle only confirmed what he was already coming to be convicted of. He was astonished at the truth. Now the word astonish here in the Greek is a very strong word. It, it means to be really just dumbfounded by something. As we would say today, just to be blown away by a thing. Or to be utterly amazed now, you'll notice that the Holy Spirit doesn't say he was amazed at the miracle. Now, one of the reasons that's surprising in a way is because that's the effect that miracles normally have. That's why sometimes in the Bible they are called wonders. They're called wonders because they produce wonder in the person who sees them. There's no word here of being astonished at the blindness that came on his friend. No word. But there is word often being astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Not even of Paul and of Barnabas, but the teaching of the Lord. Now that's a beautiful thing. What better mark really is there of grace than that? Suppose you had seen the Lord feeding the 5,000. And, or, well... Let's change that. Suppose you, you hadn't seen the Lord feeding the 5,000. And let's say two people came to you that day. And one of them said, you won't believe what happened today. The most amazing thing happened. That this man took bread and fish and multiplied it to feed 5,000. Isn't that amazing? And a second person comes in and says, well, something amazing happened today. I heard a sermon on the bread of life, how the Lord 
feeds a hungry soul, saves that soul, brings him into union with God the Father through himself so that they have everlasting life. Which of those two has come under the power of the gospel? The second one, obviously, because he's astonished at the truth, not at the miracle. Sergius Paulus is astonished at the teaching of the Lord as it came to him. Um, Although, this is the wonderful thing, this is an astonishment that was taking place prior to the miracle. So even though the devil was trying to frustrate what Paul was saying, uh, it wasn't working. Because God is able to bless his word to whoever he's going to bless it to, whatever the hindrance or the difficulty. Sometimes we need to see things from our side, sometimes we need to see them from God's side. He was astonished at the word of God. Sadly, in our sinful condition, our familiarity with things breeds contempt. And God forbid that we should be over-familiar in a sinful way with the word of God. The confession of faith is a wonderful document. I would agree with those who have better judgment than myself that the first chapter of it is the most sublime of all, where it's speaking of the self-authenticating power of the Bible, the way it authenticates itself to be the word of God when you hear it or when you read it. And it speaks of the heavenliness of the material, the efficacy of its doctrine, it works in other words, the majesty of its style, whether that's law, history, politics, proverbs, the consent of all the parts, the unity and agreement, the scope of the whole, and the full disclosure it makes of the only way of man's salvation, and many other incomparable excellencies, as well as the entire perfection thereof. These things, they say, manifested to be the word of God. Yet, the confession says, the full persuasion of its truth and of its divine authority comes from the inward work of the Holy Spirit working through that word in your heart. How true that is. The real persuasion of the truth and the authority of the Bible, in spite of the impression it makes in you, is through the inward work of the Spirit working through that word in your heart. That's what worked in Sergius Paulus. Filling the preacher, convicting the sorcerer, and converting the Roman proconsul, which has the added benefit of opening Cyprus to the word of God. So that when Barnabas went later to fulfill a missionary journey, it's to Cyprus he went. May the Lord grant that kind of spirit to ourselves. Filling the preacher and ensuring that you walk out here today either convicted of your sin or converted by the power of God. In either case, the spirit of the Lord upon you. Let's close our service by singing in Psalm 19. And at verse 7. Psalm 19 and at verse 7. Words again that we're familiar with, but Lord forbid that we should be over familiar with them. Or familiar in a, in a sinful way. After describing the 
wonder of God's creative power in the universe. It then speaks of the greater wonder of his word. In verse 7, God's law is perfect and converts the soul in sin that lies. God's testimony is most sure and makes the (coughs) simple wise. Now, the simple person here is not a simple person as we sometimes or used to describe simple people. The word simple here is a reference to teachable. That coexists, coexists perfectly well with intelligence. A really intelligent person is a teachable person. But they need to be made wise. And only God can make that intelligent person wise. And he made Sergius Paulus wise. Let's just uh, sing 7 to 10. The presenter, that's four stanzas. And we stand to sing. God's Be with you all.